Hello and welcome to Let's Pod This. My name is Andy Moore. It's good to be with you again this week. If that music has got you a little bit confused, or maybe it's tickling a memory you have somewhere in your head, that's because this is our original theme music that we used in the first year or two of the podcast, uh, which began in 2017. Uh, This song is written by local kindy rock band, the Sugar Free All-Stars, who were generous enough to allow us to use it here on the show. And as we near our 250th episode in a little over a month from now, um, which is a big milestone, I think it's time to revisit some of these themes of years past. And I have a soft spot for this one. It's upbeat, it's fun, it's local, and uh, maybe it's time to bring it back. Maybe as we move into, you know, the next the next uh, season of life of Let's Pod This, we should return in some ways to an earlier time. Okay, uh, well, this week's episode is going to be uh, a bit of a split ticket. Up first, we're going to discuss um, the situation with the tribal compacts being renegotiated. And we're doing this today. In fact, I'm recording this on a Monday, which is unusual. Normally we record on Fridays, but I waited until today because the house was coming back in for special session today. And they just did a few minutes ago, override the governor's veto um, on a specific bill. And and the story here has kind of spanned uh, several weeks, if not months, if not years And I think it's really important because it's going to keep coming up over and over again in the next several months and into next year and uh, could play a role, not maybe not in the election next year, but certainly as we move towards 2026, which I know is way too far off to even think about. But uh, this is important. It's something that's worth important. And it it has that undertone of importance to our uh, Oklahoma politics and government that I think is important. It illustrates separation of powers or highlights the issue of separation of powers. It does a lot here. So we're going to talk about that some in uh, just a minute. And then after that, at the end of the episode, the last half will be uh, an interview that I did with Oklahoma County Commissioner Brian Mon um, about the SHINE program, uh, which is a, essentially a jail diversion program that uh, he's been involved with here in Oklahoma County uh, for a number of years. Um, he presented on the Shine program at CivicsCon in June of this year. And I, well, I wasn't able to sit in there because I was, you know, managing the event. But I had several, several of the attendees who were in there said it was really great. And then there were several folks who couldn't attend because they were in another session and came up to me and said, I really wanted to hear about this. Is this a topic that you could talk about on the podcast? And so I said, sure. And uh, and Commissioner Mon was uh, was gracious enough to come on the show and talk about that. And it is genuinely interesting. Uh, lots of stuff to uh, to think about with that. So we'll come back to my interview with Commissioner Brian Mon in just a minute. But first, let's talk about tribal gaming compacts. And maybe I'll start with a bit of uh, a bit of background that you may remember, but just to refresh or for our new listeners anyone who's the the one new listener who's picked this up as a stalwart and exciting episode and doesn't want to go back and listen to our catalog of 244 other episodes. Um, you might remember that a couple of years ago, 
I think it was early in the pandemic, actually, um, there was a lot of scuttlebutt about these gaming compacts, right? So Stitt had been in office. His first year was pretty smooth. Then 2019 started getting a little bumpy for him, right? He started harping on this issue of that we needed to renegotiate the tribal gaming compacts. And that spilled over into 2020, which then, you know, the pandemic kind of took over. And the the issue at hand is that the state has these tribal gaming compacts that essentially lay out the relationship between the state and the tribe or tribes. Um, there's a different one for each tribe, but there's like a, it's like a standard contract that they use with all of them. And it essentially like lays out the, the, the split of money, right? How much money from gaming do the casinos, do the tribes get to keep? And what percentage does the state get uh, in there? And the way that they were negotiated, the way it's written, the tribes would argue is that they are, those compacts are uh, good in perpetuity, that they renew automatically, that no renegotiation or approval is required. And they said, you know, we're okay with how it is. Let's just keep it the same. And Governor Stitt disagreed. Um, Initially, whenever that was in 2019, he was like, no way, these expired. We got to redo them. The tribe said, that's not the case, you know, and we'll, we'll appeal it as high as we have to, to get someone to make a ruling on this. And the governor said, well, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and renegotiate new compacts with some tribes. Uh, And indeed he did. He renegotiated and signed new gaming compacts with four of the smaller tribes, the Comanche Nation, the Oto Missouri, um, the uh, United Ketowa Band of Cherokee Indians, and the uh, I don't know if it's Killigee or Killigee, I think it's Killigee, tribal town. Um, those four entities signed and submitted new compacts to the U.S. Department of the Interior, who deemed them approved. That was a big win for the governor uh, in his mind that, all right, great. This means that we can renegotiate these tri- these these agreements. Um, unfortunately, um, that got appealed up to the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, And they said those new compacts violated the State Tribal Gaming Act um, for authorizing game types such as Sportsbook um, because that had not been uh, allowed under state law. So there's some other kind of things there. And so really what you have here is a, a, a dividing line between those four smaller tribes and maybe some others. I don't know. Uh, and we'll say the the big tribe, right? The the five tribes, um, the Comanches, the Cherokees, not the, not the Comanches, excuse me, the Cherokees, the Choctaws, the um, Chickasaws, the um, gosh, now I'm now that I'm rattling them off, I'm blanking on the other two, um, the uh, Muscogee Nation and Seminole Nation, maybe. Oh shoot, I should know that better. Anyway, the five tribes. Um, and so you've got this line, big tribes, small tribes, uh, and essentially in many ways it's tribes with money and tribes without money right now, which I think is the incentive, right? For the smaller tribes, they would like to get a better deal because they, they don't have access. Um, they don't have the resources to do some of this stuff. And they thought if we can renegotiate ours first, that gives us a leg up over the bigger tribes, helps lever the playing field, yada, yada, yada. Well, so that kind of hit a brick wall. And um, then it came back up this year 
And because I guess it's been four years since then, right? So maybe it's now time to kind of review these. And during the legislative session this year, the legislature, both chambers, House and Senate, passed a bill that would extend the compacts for one year. Um, Just kind of extend them out. Now, no one is even talking about this question from last time about whether or not they have to be extended. But the legislature said, you know, we're going to extend them for a year. And they did that because the governor is again saying, nope, these are done. We should we should renegotiate. And he had even put forth uh, another one. And I think these smaller tribes had signed on to it. And it essentially was going to renegotiate in five years. But it tweaked a few other things. And we don't have to get into the details of the of the actual compact right now. But the the legislature said, hang on, like, Governor, you don't have the authority to do this. The legislature has the authority to do this. You need to stay in your lane, bro, right? And let us handle this. And we're going to extend it for one year, which gives us all time to come back to the table and, uh, and renegotiate this. And uh, they, you know, didn't like that at all. Uh, and so they passed that bill and the governor vetoed it as I think we all knew he would, right? He, he vetoed it definitely as a way to say, nope, I don't agree. I'm not going to pass the law. Well, now you've poked the bear. And as we've seen time and time again, when the governor vetoes all these bills, like he did on his, with his tantrum 20 this year, um, then the legislature just comes back and overrides it. And this is one of the benefits and I would say one of the perils of having uh, a super majority in both chambers of the legislature, right? Is that there is effectively no check on that power. Even if you have a governor that disagrees with the legislature and, and uses his power to veto, which is one of the checks and balances in our system, he, it goes back to them. And if they have enough power, they can just override that. So it, it means that there is not the accountability that I think voters assume is built into the system. So maybe you agree with them in this situation, but there are um, certainly some uh, situations where you might disagree with that. There are times that the governor vetoes bills and I agree with his veto. There are times that he does and I don't. Um, And I think, you know, when we see this, we see a, a sidestepping of, accountability and of, of, of that check on power. And that should, that is a little worrisome, right? If anyone who cares about democracy, when you see, um, absolute power being wielded, you should be a little cautious, but I digress. The real thing here is that, uh, just to go stick to the story, legislature passed bills to extend the compacts, governor vetoed them and said, no, no, we're going to do it a different way. And the legislature went to the attorney general because it, you know, eventually gets to a lawsuit and treat says, uh, Hey, AG Drummond, can you represent the state in this? Can you, do you have our back? Is what he said. Do you have our back, Mr. Drummond? And Drummond was like, well, you know, looking at the law, it looks like, um, I can. And, uh, in fact, treats words to Drummond, uh, where it's become clear that the governor has a conflict. He can either choose to represent the interests of the state or his own personal interests. And I believe he has made his decision clear. 
Yo, that's some pretty strong words coming from Pro Tem Treat. So they asked uh, the AG if he will represent the state. Um, and the AG says, I mean, I think according to the law, specifically Title 74, Section 18BA3, he says, I think I can. I, there's nothing that prohibits me. However, it would be nice if the legislature would invite me or ask me, request that I represent the state. Then we're like, then we're good, right? Like, I probably don't need your permission, but it'd be nice if I had it. It's all keeps us all a little more copacetic. So the pro tem, uh, Senator Treat, sends a letter that says, you know, please consider this my formal request on behalf of the Oklahoma State Senate to assume control of the defense of the state's interests in Cherokee Nation at all versus DOI at all with all required speed and diligence. And then um, this is, you know, in tandem with a letter from Speaker McCall, where he said he also believes that the AG has unilateral authority to take over litigation. He doesn't actually formally request it, um, which may or may not be consequential. I guess we'll find out. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the the AG has indeed signed on to be involved in this case. And I'm uh, referencing heavily the series of articles written by Nondoc on this. Uh, and so I will link to all of them in the show notes if you're interested in like reading the letters from Treat and McCall and all of that. So that letter from Treat with that formal ask was sent to the AG on July 18th. So just a couple of weeks ago. And um, then a few days later, the Senate comes back in. And they do, as expected, they override the governor's veto. Um, and a, a brief side note is that they voted about a month ago, um, back in June, to override the veto. But they fell one, one vote short. Like, Treat, uh, you know, says he knew he had the votes, but just not everybody came in. Like, they, not all the senators were present to vote, and that meant that he didn't have enough yes votes which was a bit of an embarrassing blunder, I think, um, to a lot of people. It's like, why, why would you hold the vote if you didn't know you had the votes in hand that day? And maybe he just, maybe it was a slip. Um, but he uh, moved to like hold that and to reconsider it, and that's what they did um, here on, on July 24th. Um, they did it immediately. They overrode Stitt's veto of Senate Bill 26X, uh, which, as we said a minute ago, proposed extending all existing state tribal compacts one year, essentially. And um, then, uh, so that was kind of locked in, right? And you had you had tribal leaders from several tribes in the gallery watching it, right? Um, Chief Batten of the Choctaw Nation said, I'm really pleased with the tone that it's set today. Uh, you know, that's money that will be lost for the state of Oklahoma and for the tribes because we're competing against Arkansas, competing against Texas. So why would we not want to continue providing revenue to the state of Oklahoma? Yada, yada, yada. Uh, it was Seminole Nation. Um, Stitt, of course, was not happy with this. He was very frustrated. No governor likes having their vetoes overridden. Overrode? Overridden. And he Stitt's statement was, 
Despite real concerns for the future of our state, the Senate has chosen to disregard the governor's compact in favor of compact language the tribes wanted. I am trying to protect eastern Oklahoma from turning into a reservation, and I've been working to ensure these compacts are the best deal for all 4 million Oklahomans. Unfortunately, the Senate seems to disagree and, t- and use an illegitimate process to do so. Now, I'm just going to point out that there are several flaws, I think, in his wording or logic or whoever wrote this. Um, f- first of all, it's just strong language. I'm trying to protect Eastern Oklahoma from turning into a reservation. I, I don't know exactly what he meant by that, but I will say that the reservations exist not because of any tribe, but because of the American government, right? In- including the state of Oklahoma, but long before statehood and certainly since then, reservations exist simply because the you know the white man's government created them and forced the native americans onto that reservation so whatever you're trying to say that's negative about the reservation there trying to elude that like i don't want to turn it into a reservation well that reservation exists any reservation exists because somebody else created it and it is not the tribe's fault full stop period right um <laughs> so that's just ridiculous to me um, I mean, it feels, yeah, anyway. Then the next sentence, I've been working to ensure that these compacts are the best deal for all 4 million Oklahomans. And that's a turn of phrase he uses frequently, right? All 4 million Oklahomans. And of course, that 4 million would include all of the tribal uh, residents, members, right? That That would benefit from the compacts otherwise. So like just on a surface, like mathematical level, that is incorrect, right? Like it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best deal. And then thirdly, the last line, the Senate seems to disagree and used an illegitimate process to do so. An illegitimate process. The governor is saying that the Senate voting to override his veto is an illegitimate process. And I will tell you, it is not. It is perfectly legitimate. In fact, it is Exactly what I was saying a minute ago, it is what the framers put into the constitution of our state, of our country, and many of the other states, so that there is a balance to that check, right? So that the if the, uh, the executive branch disagrees with the legislative branch, they can veto the legislation, and then the legislative branch can override that veto if they uh, so deem. Now, as I mentioned, you know, having a supermajority where they can do it with only one party's votes does seem uh, maybe like a circumvention of the intent of it. However, this veto was bipartisan. It was overwhelmingly bipartisan. I think every Democrat voted for it and a bunch of Republicans because um, there's not that many Democrats in the Senate, there's like nine. Um, and it's a totally legitimate process. And so uh, you know, those of you who know me know that I take umbrage with uh, turns of phrase with with um, like this that is that seek to delegitimize the the structure of our democracy and to to tear it down and to call into question the some of these things and like the just the the legitimacy of of the government itself. That's not cool. So. Anyway, that's the governor's statement. 
um, with which I think uh, disagree. And in fact, to Nondoc's credit, they asked, uh, or uh, you know, well, which process would you say is illegitimate? Uh, and they, the spokesperson, did not respond. <laughs> so when they were like, "Hang on, that's a big word. What, what do you? What would you say you mean there?" And they just moved on. So uh, of course, we are cruising along with time. So that was on July twenty fourth, and then on July twenty fifth, the day after the Senate. overrode the governor's veto. Attorney General Gittner Drummond enters the lawsuit over gaming compacts, going against against the wishes of the governor. Um, And and Drummond had some strong words of his own uh, to speak about the governor here. He said, it is my hope that you will acknowledge my exercise of statutory duties as an opportunity to discontinue state expenditures for costly outside counsel who continue to defend these indefensible combats. Um, Regardless of what actions you may take on this matter, I will faithfully fulfill my duty to uphold the law and act in the best interest of the state. Now, this is a a clearly a a jab at the governor hiring outside counsel to work on this stuff. The AG is saying, listen, I'm already on the payroll. Like I am elected to and paid for by the people of Oklahoma to represent the people of Oklahoma. You keep hiring outside counsel also being paid for by the people of Oklahoma. And that's, that's expensive and you shouldn't do it. Um, and, uh, which is, you know, six of one half dozen of another. It may be annoying to some of us, but the AG can also hire outside counsel for matters that he doesn't have the capacity, his office doesn't have the capacity to handle. Um, so Drummond did it. Um, of course, you know, Stitt's office was very upset. Um, their statement said General Drummond, in an unprecedented move, is turning his back on the four tribes who have been sued by Oklahoma's wealthiest tribes. Um, Drummond continues to work with these wealthy tribes as they use Oklahoma political officials to further their agenda. Governor Stitt is actively fighting for eastern Oklahoma. These tribes continue their efforts to turn Tulsa and much of the rest of eastern Oklahoma into a reservation. Again, (laughs) the tribes did not create the reservations. The tribes are perfectly happy running their own sovereign nations here on the North American continent before we came in and inflicted borders and fences and laws and rules upon them. Uh, And so those reservations exist because the government created them. And uh, it just, I mean, really chaps my hide. Uh, we're going to try to get some, you know, maybe legal experts in here to tell us if that framing has any legal consequences. But um, this is a big deal. So J.G. Drummond said that he informed the governor of his decision in a personal phone call and in an official letter. I would have loved to have been a wiretap on that phone call. <laughs> uh, in his letter, he said, and I'm going to, this is kind of long here, but he really, I mean, this is some strong language from the attorney general. He says to Governor Stitt, as you should fully understand, this long running and costly litigation is a direct result of your refusal to follow Oklahoma law. Burn. That was my editorial. Uh, back to Drummond. The four tribal gaming compacts you signed were invalid from the start 
because you did not have the approval or authorization from the Oklahoma legislature to enter the gaming compacts. He goes on to say, Oklahoma's relationship with our tribal partners has suffered greatly as a result of your divisive rhetoric and your refusal to follow the law. The citizens you were elected to serve are the ones who suffer from the irresponsible approach. Instead of working in partnership with tribal leaders to enact compacts that benefit all 4 million Oklahomans, so there he's using the governor's words against him, you insist on costly legal battles that only benefit the elite law firms you hire. Millions of dollars of state resources have been squandered on these futile efforts. Um, whoa. Whoa. This is a big deal. So, um, I do not take this action lightly. However, I see no other option because the governor has inexplicably abrogated his constitutional duties in this case. I'm going to go Google the word abrogated and hope that I pronounced it right. Uh, so that's where it left us. Uh, that's the end of last week, right? That was on July 25th. A.G. Drummond has entered the chat and like, bam, with a mic drop of a entry into the chat. Now today, the next step, which is expected, but it does deserve some recognition, is that the House also then had to come back um, and override the veto because that bill was started in the Senate. And so they had to be the first ones to override it. And since they did successfully last week, then the house came back this week to do it. And now, um, we just wait. We really, I'm not sure what the next step would be. Probably some, you know, court stuff, judicial things, some hearings. I don't know if there'll be oral arguments. I don't really know. Uh, but we are working to find out. I highly encourage you to just follow local journalists, um, because that will be the big thing. Um, they'll be the ones to find out first. But I hope this has been helpful in at least helping you understand this long-running and still ongoing battle between, and essentially it's between big tribes and small tribes who are possibly all being, you know, used or um, collaborating with the legislature and the governor, right? The legislature and the big tribes on one side and the governor and the small tribes on the other. And I mean, as a reminder, during the 2022 election, during the governor's re-election cycle, the big tribes, the big five, aligned against him and still have an effort that is essentially against the governor. Um, and I can't remember any time in history where you've had these five tribes aligned in opposition to one person the way that they are in opposition to the governor right now. That is, um, it is a bit historic in those ways. Um, for the rest of us, for just those of us who are run-of-the-mill Oklahomans who care about the future of our state and maybe don't have the legal knowledge to fully explain uh, or understand what's happening with these compacts, I think we just need to continue watching and and kind of see what develops. Again, on some level, at least on the governor's side right now, there are additional taxpayer dollars being spent on this. On the AG side, there's also additional taxpayer dollars being spent because 
the legislature appropriated more money to the AG's office this year, presumably, possibly, who knows, right, to help fund big efforts like this. And that's like how the shell game of money happens, right? Like there's money in politics from campaign donations and super PACs and all that. But there's also like the other side, right? There's the how do we incentivize aligned partners to engage in behaviors that we want to reward? Like how do we ensure the AG has the resources he needs to fight the battle we want him to fight against the governor, right? This is the this is how it happens. This is how the sausage gets made, as they say. Okay. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk to Brian Mon about something completely different. My guest today is... Brian Mon. Brian is the county commissioner for District 2 in Oklahoma County. Welcome to the show, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, commissioner Mon, tell us where your district is in the county. And just, I think listeners probably know, but every county has three county commissioners. You were one of those three for this county. And what part of the county is that? So it's basically the southern third. And in a sense, though, it's like a horseshoe shape. And so an upside uh, down horseshoe or a U shape. So it actually goes all the way up on the west side to cover areas like uh, Bethany, War Acres, Northwest Oklahoma City, Lake Hefner area, Nichols Hills. And then again, all throughout all of South Oklahoma City, coming up through Nawala, Choctaw, and Hera. And then actually a little bit north of Hera, which is considered unincorporated, which means it's outside of any city limits. Right, right. Okay. Um, that is kind of a broad, interesting swath of Oklahoma County. If you drove that in one day, you could see... A lot of different communities, uh, big and small, across the across the county. I have extreme rural areas, and then Nichols Hills. Right, <laughs> you right. know, so it's it's pretty extreme. Uh, definitely different interests. Not you know, it doesn't even come into comparison in terms of the things that are important uh, versus community to community. So yeah, I have to be very eclectic, and um, we do things. Uh, to be all things to all people, but we try to tailor as much as we can to what those communities' needs are. And um, just as an example, on the east side, in the rural areas, you might be more worried about bar ditches. For instance, in Nichols Hills, they've been more interested in us making sure all their curbs were painted with emergency uh, response address locators so that they can increase the speed of being able to get public safety vehicles to their homes. In uh, the east side of the district, they're more interested in that the drainage works in the bar ditch. You know? Sure, so, yeah. Those are kind of just two of the examples. Well, those are both good examples that all politics is local, right? That everyone has things that matter to them. And some of those issues, you know, citizens may believe are municipal issues, but in fact, they might be county issues. You kind of have to know who is the right the right elected official that can help you with those, those issues. Yeah, and there are some that you know, generally have an expectation that roads should be almost like skating rinks and that pretty smooth. And there are some that are pretty accustomed to a chug hole exist and a chug hole gets filled. And, you know, there's not an extreme alarm with them. They just know it's a process. Others are just absolutely outraged that there ever would be <laughs> a, a blemish on their road. So uh, some, you know, versus others have real value about local government. Others kind of more or less think, well, some big government will figure this out at some point. I don't have to really worry about it. But others want to be on a first name basis with their county official 
or in the cases of these municipalities, their city council person. Yeah. Well, and I'm sure some listeners to our show have heard me complain on occasion about the streets in my neighborhood. And we live in a an older neighborhood in uh, in Commissioner Bloomert's district. Is that District 1? Uh-huh. Right. So kind of in the urban core here. And many of our streets were, are stamped with the WPA stamp from 1936, oh, yeah. which tells you that's convenient to know how long this road has been there <laughs> and probably how long some of these, uh, you know, the crumbling concrete has been. Um, and I, I've been in contact with my city council member about those and trying to find out where we are, you know, on the on the city's plan to, to refresh streets, knowing that Oklahoma City and the county at large has a lot of roadway. They have to be responsible for. Um, and I know you're on the show to talk about the Shine program, but listeners, I think everybody cares about their streets. Just so people know, from, from your perspective, from, from your role as county commissioner, you are primarily responsible for um, not city streets, but roads that are under the county's jurisdiction. Can you explain the difference there? Sure. So we're responsible exclusively for those that fall outside of any city limits that, again, is referred to as unincorporated area. I have about 170 miles of that in Oklahoma County District 2. And then also towns under 5,000 of population. So for me, that's Valley Brook, Nichols Hills, and a little bitty community aside from Bethany called Woodlawn Park, which yeah. has about six streets in it. I used to live in Woodlawn Park, actually. That's so, funny. Yeah. So, yeah, so that would be my crew that went out there and worked on trying to snowplow and, you know, pick up storm limbs or something after a tornado or a windstorm. And then uh, we are first responders, so we have some responsibilities for when natural disasters occur. We have agreements with other local government entities to do the snow plowing, so we may go outside of those boundaries to do some of that. So you might say, what are they over here doing in the city when they're only responsible? But we do it in a way that's contiguous and the most flowing, and everybody kind of trades off the jurisdictions. That way we can most expeditiously get the roads returned to some safe driving conditions. And then with um, just all-around duties, just to give people background, we're also responsible as the landlords for the jail, the juvenile bureau. We have the Old County Welfare Department, which is now referred to as social services. We have Oklahoma County Emergency Management, again, back to our first responder responsibilities. And then the Planning Commission and Engineering and different things like that. So uh, there's a multitude of things, unlike maybe a city council, if you were... Uh, accustomed to meeting a city council person that's usually a very temporary job time consuming but temporary in terms of consideration what it's uh, considered for employment but we're full-time and manage about 1800 employees throughout the county for the different departments and then have all these different responsibilities and of course in Oklahoma County we're the largest population in the state yeah yeah that's really helpful Uh, and today you are coming on the show to talk about the shine program and and uh, so listeners know, this was a presentation, uh, well, you did a presentation on the SHINE program during CivicsCon for us a few weeks ago, and this was um, one of the topics that I had people come up and say, this was really great, or people went to another session and said, I wanted to go to that, I, you know, my friend went and said it was great, is this something you could cover on the podcast, and so I'm I'm glad that uh, your staff reached out to, to get you on the show. Um, maybe let's just start at the top and Kind of tell us a little bit about what the program is and how it came about. Sure. So SHINE stands for Start Helping Impacted Neighborhoods Everywhere. It's sort of a long acronym, but we wanted it to have a, a meaning. It's not just another program. 
And while there is uh, certainly a no shortage of alternative sentencing programs and community service programs, certainly what made this unique, so unique so that Harvard gave us an award a few years back as one of their Bright Idea Awards, because as near as they could tell, it was the only place where the labor, which is in-kinded through alternative sentencing in the courts, combined with the equipment that the county already has. So we have the dump trucks, we have the trailers, the burn pit, the scrap pile. And so uh, things that were not really feasible either through labor or cost prohibitive that were suffering through all local governments and you know things you would ideally want to do as a government leader but you just can't accomplish, we could now take into consideration. So I went back to courts when I first was elected because of our bulging jail population was hitting around 3,000 for a jail that was designed for 1,200, and asked them, instead of being sentenced to 30, 60, 90 days in jail for whatever low-rate offenses that statutes define who can be in community service, would they rather instead sentence them to my crew to go out and do public works? And so uh, we were starting with battling graffiti because there's a law that allows us to go on private property with property owner's permission to remove graffiti. But it became obvious that more than just a handful of those on any one good stretch of wall is all you need. Mm -hmm. And so we had an abundance of people who could be doing other things. So we expanded to schools, parks, neighborhoods, worked on a number of things. Then we even transcended into assisting some nonprofits for things that were being done in the community. Food banks, the Salvation Army pantries, working with uh, Bucks for Bikes for the kids and Angel Tree for veterans and a number of things with the Christmas Connection, later Sharing Tree, just it really just kept expanding and we were able to accomplish it because we have a crew chief that guards them. My commitment to the court is that they aren't unsupervised. They are people who made a mistake, but uh, generally don't require anything more than just somebody to oversee them. And they go out in the public and then we expanded it to community gardens and those have been extremely successful. And as a result, we dramatically reduced the jail population. I would argue that we've reduced the recidivism because a lot of people have time to think about what they did and they decide they don't really want to do it again. And while it may be hard work, it's honest work. And it's stuff that, you know, your public work crews and stuff that work for your local governments have to do. So it's not something that's beyond what we do anyway. It's just that it was always impossible to be able to tackle all of it and now we can make more of an impact. I would say that we're up to about three industrial dumpsters a day in terms of what we collect. And a couple of years ago, we were able to expand to a seven day week. Uh, that makes it more convenient for those who are still keeping their job. They have to work four hours a day or they don't get credit, but they don't have to work any more than four hours a day. Our goal is to make sure that they are able to continue to work. They pick their kids up, they drop their kids off, you know, do whatever they need to do to keep them in the family unit. So we want them paying their taxes, their court fees, their creditors, and raising their kids. And what we know with people who go to jail for even a short period of time, they generally lose their job. They usually are living hand to mouth in more cases than not. And then they're therefore in a perpetual downward spiral that creates all kinds of social issues like sooner care has to take over the health care plan. And then, you know, we have to take over DHS maybe, you know, taking care of their kids. So there's just a lot of things that we started truing up, if you will, by this program. About a year after we were working it, an employee of mine had an idea that we could do Students for Shine. She said, you know, why don't we incentivate the young people to do good? Idle time is, you know, where they get in trouble. 
And I didn't really have the vision because I thought, well, it's going to take another supervisor and we'll have to spoon feed it and we'll have to be kind of corralling all these kids out there and what's kids' safety? And she said, no, 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 let's just let them have visions of what they think they can do. Just anything that's volunteer where they don't get compensated for their time, someone besides them that signs off for their time. And if they do 100 hours or more before they graduate either high school or college or both, they can receive a distinguished graduate cord from the county and a certificate to put in their portfolio for scholarships and stuff like that. Well, the phenomenon became that the students outproduced the court-mandated offenders, Mm -hmm. and they were taken on grotier projects that, quite frankly, I think if we'd have brought the offender crews out there, they'd have cried. You know, I probably would have cried. You know, they were just rolling up their sleeves. So there's all this negativity about youth today. And I was a good kid, but I didn't really give a whole lot of my time back or didn't think about, well, I could just be spending my summer vacations out here doing good and signing up. I was pretty interested in playing with the kids in the neighborhood and stuff like that. So I'm impressed with them, and I think there's a lot of inspiration out there. We've had a record setter of 1,800 hours from a 17-year-old girl from Carl Albert. Our most impoverished schools tend to be our highest producers of Shine graduates which I always find interesting because they have the least amount of resources, the probably single parents, not necessarily always empowered with transportation. And they're figuring out within their local spheres where they can give, and then they're making a difference. And we've had them come up with ideas that I never would have envisioned. Some of the neater stories is one found out that the Tuttle Police Department, which is not even in our county, uh, was having to do layoffs due to budget restrictions. And so an officer actually had to come in off the street to cover the phones because they had to shrink up an admin thing. Sure. So they worked out between their college schedule doing like 20 hours a week of covering the phones so that the officer could be out on the beat doing public safety instead of being tied down to a phone. And then others that found their own passions, they explored whether or not there were opportunities to volunteer there. And two of the neater examples, one just loved animals, so they went to the Humane Society Humane Society said, if we were looking to hire somebody, this was somebody who demonstrated a good job and was working free for a long time. So as soon as they graduated college, they hired them in a higher up position. And another one wanted to be a meteorologist. And I hadn't thought of this ever. And they thought that maybe volunteering their time as a storm chaser, because those are volunteers in many cases for the news stations. You might not know that. And um, they used that for their time, and they were doing a huge public service, alerting us to different storms and stuff like that. So it's been a real neat experience, and um, part of how, I'll just keep talking about it. Yeah, I'll interrupt you in a second. Go ahead. (laughs) Uh, You know, obviously, when things go so well, people get in the way, and um, they decided it needed to have some sort of funding other than taxes. You know, if I'd ever known that I couldn't use within my budget taxes, then probably wouldn't have ever had the guts to start the program. So it was too popular after it had been going for a while when they ruled that there needed to be other funds, that those were restricted. So we had to go raise the money. And so we started the Shine Foundation. And then the goal was to raise an endowment so that we could actually eventually get this thing off the government grid. So even though it's a government program, it wouldn't be required for taxes or grants. And uh, we needed a $3 million goal, but, you know, I always tell somebody, if you can't raise a million, don't worry about three, so we'll just start with the first million. Sure. And it's true what they say, that's the hardest. And uh, we accomplished that last December and hit our million-dollar goal. And um, 
it's going really well with continuing to raise funds, but it's contributing. And so eventually, I think regardless in the future, who is elected commissioner, there won't be any incentive to do away with the program because they won't take the money. It's held by seven volunteer citizens who receive no compensation, and their charge is to manage the account and provide for the uh, program. Yeah, that's really exciting. This is a really cool program, Commissioner. Um, And so I kind of want to talk a bit more about maybe the two parts, right? So one is the folks that have um, are an offender of some sort, and then the other one is the student side. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll go in that order. So on the offender side of the program, um, is that piece still funded? Is that the piece that's like allowed to be funded by taxpayer dollars? So what I have is a coalition of partnerships. I've had the city county health department. I've had the city of Oklahoma City, the city of Dell City. I've had a few grants from private nonprofit foundations. And so a big funder is Oklahoma City, who gives us grant work for some of their public work projects. Sure. Instead of hiring employees to do it, they just spend a fraction of that, what would otherwise cost, on the program, and the participants do it. You know, as I mentioned, it pretty much started off with about graffiti, and we still do graffiti. But now, by far and away, it's illegal dumping. Mm. It is the new dandelion. I mean, there's just stuff being dumped everywhere. Yeah. Could you tell us about the the situation in Crystal Lake? Isn't that like one of the big parks that had a real bad problem with dumping? That was a huge one. It's a natural parameter, so there's no real barrier to keep people out. It's on Southwest 15th, just west of MacArthur. It's probably the crown jewels of Oklahoma City. It's a beautiful lake. A lot of people go fishing. Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and Whiz Kids all used it. It's a natural habitat, so they can do programming out there, camping out there overnight. They've got teepees, so the kids can camp in those. It's really fun, but the city had to close it down if, uh, about a decade ago and had to, um, or a little over, and it really got overpopulated with all kinds of illegal dumping because there was, again, no barrier to keep people out, and they wanted to reopen it, but there was a cost factor in how they were going to get those 45 acres until scissor tail it was the largest park in the oklahoma city park system and so it was just a monster to maintain as you can appreciate and this was allowed uh, so we went in there and did that and got it back to what i call ground zero and then uh, they actually formed a partnership with city care who has a work component as part of graduating out of the homeless shelter you have to demonstrate that you can keep a job and so what they did was they had a, a contract with City Care where they hired them to go out and keep it maintained. So we kind of reopened the city's now second largest park for virtually nothing, you know, in terms of what it otherwise would have cost and then maintained for a while. Now City Care relinquished control of it and it's now under the parks department. But uh, that was to help give Oklahoma City a chance to build yeah. it into their budget. And it's beautiful. I was out there last week. It's, it's still a terrific, terrific site. That's great. I have no, I had no idea it was the second largest park in the city. It's Mammoth, and there's a trail. It's connected to the Oklahoma City Trails, okay. and it's got a respite spot out there on a peninsula overlooking the lake, and it's just a beautiful site. It's a great place to go watch the sunset. Everybody thinks about uh, Lake Hefner yeah. or Overholster, but this is equally beautiful. Interesting. I'll have to check it out. Um, that's really that's really fascinating. Do just a, like a logistics question. I used to work with mental health court um, in a earlier life um, when I was doing uh, mental health work, and you know certainly we worked through a lot of kind of diversion programs. And this is back when mental health court was very first started, just the first year. Um, but for for folks that have entanglement with the 
um, legal justice system that might get diverted into the Shine program. Do they, is it a set number of hours they have to serve? Is it like, I guess, how does it work? Is it part of their like, that is their sentence is X number of days or hours with the program? On the extreme side, we've had judges look at, not just in lieu of county jail, we've had some judges look at in lieu of Department of Corrections time, you know, going to state pen. And so they may get a longer sentence. I'm aware of one that got 2,000 hours, for instance. Okay. And they said, well, you know, I won't be able to keep my job. And he said, I got news for you. You weren't going to keep your job when you went to prison anyway. But now you get to go home at night and stay with your kids, and you can figure something else out. So in that, those are rare. Sure. Um, but on most cases, they usually get about 40 hours, sometimes 100. And they're usually for DUI or, like you mentioned, drug court. They're our number one participants uh, in terms of the location of where we get them. And um, now we're having people who have, um, you know, sometimes judges are getting creative in terms of ways they're trying to help and maintain order in their courtroom. So um, previously, if you were late from jury duty or you skipped a day because you overslept or hung over or whatever, then you may go to jail and you're not even on trial you know you're right. a part of the jury box but they need you in total to be able to continue the operations of the court so some judges have sentenced some people that way uh for perjury you know I had a judge explain to me one time it makes no sense to send this person over to jail for three days but that's what we used to do if we caught them lying on the stand mm -hmm. now they're going to do some shine for three days or five days or something like that over the next few months they work it into their work schedule and stuff and as a result, by offering that up front to a lot of the courtrooms for decorum, people have got some thought about, I may wind up on this crew and having to scrape off graffiti or pick up some trash. And so they think it's helping them keep the courtrooms operating a little more um, appropriately, I guess. Sure. Is the right word. Yeah. Well, I mean, the program sounds like a win-win, right? It's keeping people, uh, as you said, in their homes with their families in many cases able to keep their jobs um, folks that that arguably don't need to be in prison where the outcome and we all know the outcomes of going to prison are not great right, right. for folks um, uh, whether it's county or or doc uh, and so creating opportunities like this for folks to give back to the community uh, and stay involved with their families or with their community their jobs whatever seems like a win-win um this is great. So I, I assume this is open to people anywhere in the county, not just those who reside in, in your district, right? Right. And sometimes when they're moving from another location, we've had judges as far away as California research that this exists, and they'll say, I'll grant you that you can leave the state and move. You've accepted a job. Your spouse accepted a job, but you're going to transfer your community service to that. So it's primarily servicing Oklahoma County right. uh, offenders, you know, people who offended in Oklahoma County. but. It can be for others. Well, that's really that's really great. Do you know how many people you've had that have gone through the program now? Thousands. I, I know that um, the last I checked, we had done somewhere around a quarter of a million hours wow. since inception, which is quite a lot. You know, if you think about the average stint is usually 40 hours. Yeah. And so... Um, it's, it's made a big, big difference in this community. I'm quite proud of it. And it, there's uh, not altogether 
uh, frequent, but it's not uncommon either when you have somebody who decides their time was maybe wrapped up at noon and they're like, well, I want to see this project through and they'll just go ahead and finish throughout the day. And what definitely happens is soul transformations is what I call it because as they see um, people, you know, going through this and what it has done to the businesses or the property owners or the residences that had to suffer through having this stuff illegally dumped on them or graffitied all over their property. And a lot of times the property owners come out there with just espousing gratitude. You know, I don't have the money to do this. I'm not physically capable of doing it. I don't have any loved ones in this community that can come here and help me. And so they really feel a sense of pride in what they've done and accomplished in helping the others. And then I think they're very more sensitive to that this is really bad and dissuade others, you know, maybe some of their old running buddies from the bad eggs that they were hanging out with, you know, before they're like, this isn't cool, man. You know, I know we've had graffiti artists, for instance, that have been sentenced to our crews. And sure. Like, I just never thought about the devastation. You know, when they have business owners come out and say, my customers are scared to come in here now because they think this marks it as a gang territory uh-huh. or something like that. Yeah, it's a it's one thing to spray the paint. It's something else to scrape it off, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's really the same thing as when you were a kid and you crayoned on a wall and your grandma brought in a warm bucket of suds and said, you're going to scrub until you feel like your elbow is going to fall off. Right. But you never crayon the walls again. Right. It's just another level up, but it has the same concept. Sure, yeah. Uh, Commissioner Mon, if, if our listeners are interested in getting involved with the SHINE program, do you have a role for volunteers or a way for people to, to get involved? We do. We have Citizens for SHINE now also, which has uh, uh, been largely embraced in our community centers, a lot of seniors and even the adult daycare centers. And then also we have people who are partnering on our community gardens. There's a big opportunity for that. A lot of people are interested in gardening, but they don't necessarily have the wherewithal or energy to do the whole garden, but it's Mm kind of nice to go out and kind of work a row and you can either add to it with your own planting alongside of it, or you can just go and harvest whatever we've put out. And we have a number that are helping us water and weed. In fact, so many so that I thought originally we could only probably do three of them. And actually we've had so many participant stakeholders take a part of it that it's expanded our bandwidth to be able to do 10. Wow. So if people are interested, my cell phone is 405-824-3120. You can call or text me, and also my email is real simple. It's brian, B-R-I-A-N, at okcounty.org, brian at okcounty.org. And those are uh, the easiest ways to reach out, and then we'll get you plugged in, find a community near you that maybe you'll be interested in going and helping out. Super. Thanks. Uh, Commissioner Mullen, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you having me on. Uh, my guest today has been Oklahoma County Commissioner Brian Mon sharing about the Shine program. If you'd like to learn more, he gave his cell phone and email. You can also just Google Shine program Oklahoma County, and it's usually one of the first two hits to come up. Okay, on that note, brings us to the end of the episode big thanks to Commissioner Brian Mon for being with us here to talk about the Shine program. If you'd like to learn more about that, there'll be a link to it in the show notes as well. Um, and stay tuned. Uh, our guest for later this week will have a two episodes this week. Um, for the next episode will be JB. JB Williams, who you may know, local hip-hop 
artist, entrepreneur, restaurateur, and activist and nonprofit leader uh, is coming on the show this week. Looking forward to that conversation and we'll see you then. Until then, uh, have a great week and don't forget decisions are made by those who show up. <laughs>